All right. Hey, uh, leaders, I know that we just sent you back there, table group leaders, but we've actually got some spots up here. So if you, we've got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, we got seven. So seven table group leaders can come up and find a spot if you want to do that real quick. All right. My name is uh, Drew and I'm up here by all these fans, so I can't hear myself, but I hope that you guys can hear me. Uh, we are really excited to be able to be back here with you guys at the table. Excited to get to see a lot of old faces for, uh, that we haven't seen for several months now, and then some new ones. Uh, looking forward to getting to meet you. There's like two here and one right, oh, that one might be used actually. So there's two there, JC. Okay, that far in, yes. Okay, perfect, okay. Uh, so as Alex said, we, we love to every night get together and open up God's word and walk through that together in two parts. I'm going to explain that to you in just a second, uh, but that's something that we love to get to do. Before I jump into that, I want to tell you tonight about two really bad ideas. Uh, one bad idea took place a little over 3,000 years ago, and that bad idea belonged to a very powerful king. The other bad idea took place about three decades ago, and that bad idea belongs to me. I'll tell you about mine first, and then in a little bit I'll tell you about uh, the kings. So uh, I'm about 10 or 11 years old, and I am hanging out with my best friend, Eric. We're at his house, and Eric and I have been like doing stuff together all day. It's one of those long summer days where we're just hanging out doing everything we can. And we are at this point in the day when it feels like we've done like all we know to do, and so now we're bored. And we're trying to figure out something to do, and, and we don't know what. And so we're just sitting there. Finally, we go to Eric's mom, uh, Miss Kelly, and we go to her and we tell her we're bored. We don't have anything to do. We don't know what to do. And so she does the mom thing and comes up with solutions and suggestions and answers. And, and what if she comes up with is, what if you guys went and rode bikes? And when we heard that, we thought, you know what, that, act, that could work. Eric could ride his bike. I could ride his little brother Jacob's bike. He's roughly my size, so we could do that. So we're excited. We go out to the garage, we grab the bikes, we start rolling them out, only to realize that Jake's bike has a flat tire. So now we're back to square one. And Eric and I walk in the house and our shoulders are slumped and our head is down because this is the worst day ever and there's nothing fun to do ever and all of those things. And when his mom sees us, she asks us what's wrong. Bike tire's flat, so now we can't ride bikes. And she suggests, well, what if you went down the street to the farmers and borrowed their bike? Now, just, just you know, the farmers, that was not their occupation. That was their name, just to clarify that, okay? Farmers were a family in our church, and they lived right down the street from Eric and his family. And so uh, they had kids that our age, that were our age, which means they're going to have bikes that we can ride. And we're like, that works. And so Eric and I start walking down the streets to get to uh, the farmer's house. And we, we, we arrive there. We walk up the steps onto the porch. We ring the doorbell. Nobody comes to the door. Ring it again, nobody, and we realize there's nobody home. They're gone. And we are so dejected at this point. It feels like, feels like the universe is conspiring against us having fun on this day. And so we're walking down the steps, and as we do, we begin to walk past the garage, and we just stop at that moment, and, and we walk over to the garage. It was one of those that has like the five square glass windows across the top, right? And we stand up on our tippy toes and we peek in and we could see the bike that I would be riding like right there, right there inside the garage. It's like, it's there, you know? And this would make the day if we could just have that bike. And so we start thinking and we kind of realize, you know, the farmers, if they were here, they would totally let us have that bike. And 
the truth is, like, we don't even know where they're at and how long they'll be. I bet we could borrow that bike, ride around and have a good time, and be back before they even know, like, what's, before they even know it's missing. It'll be no big deal, right? So this is the beginning, just so you know, heads up, the beginning of our bad idea. We're just going to get this bike. Now, here's, uh, fortunately, the, the farmers had this garage door that was not on, like, a motor. This is, like, old school. You just picked it up by your hand, right? You could just lift it up yourself. Uh, the, the problem was that it must have been like solid steel or something because it was the heaviest garage door in the world, at least to 10-year-old boys it was. And we could not, like Eric took a crack at it, could not lift this door up. I take a crack at it, cannot lift this door up. And we're realizing it's going to take both of us to do this. So we both line up on the door. We get there and bend down and count the three, and then we lift this thing up in the air. Now, we are able to get it up in the air but we're not able to get it like far enough on the track that it will stay up. You know what I mean? Like the weight of it is still pressing down on our bodies. And so now I'm holding the garage door up and I can like touch the bike. Like it is right there and I still can't have it, right? Trying to kind of get to this thing, but can't do it. So put the garage door down again. And Eric and I put our little 10 year old heads together to come up with the plan. And we think there for a second and Eric goes, I got it. I know what we're going to do. Um, we're going to lift this door up and we're going to get up in the air and I'm going to count to three. And when I get to three, you're going to run in as fast as you can and get that bike and then run back out with that bike. Um, and what I should have said in that moment is yes, but Eric, if it takes two of us to hold the garage door up, what happens when I let go of the garage door? It's not what I said though. I said, okay, sounds good. And so we grab, we go to this garage door, we go, we get this thing up in, in the air and like our bodies, our 10 year old bodies are like shaking under the weight of this door as we're trying to hold this up as Eric begins the countdown, okay? Three, two, one. And as soon as he says one, I jump in as fast as I can. And as soon as I jump in there, I just hear behind me, cow, like behind me. And I turned around and my friend Eric is gone, right? And I am trapped now inside this garage. And I immediately begin to just freak out. Like I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm stuck in here. The things that go through your 10 year old mind, I'm gonna have to live in here and eat dog food to survive and all of these things, right? And, and I'm sitting in there just like panicking, right? And, and then I begin to look around and kind of viewing my surroundings and I realize, good news, the farmers have a back door to the garage that goes right into their backyard. I can just walk right out there and I'm free. Bad news, uh, the farmers also have a large German shepherd named Lady. Uh, who just heard a burglar break into her owner's house and came running to that back door and is going berserk on the other side of that door wanting to come in and just murder me, okay? And so, like, I am, now I realize there's no going out there and hopefully that door holds, uh, otherwise I'm dead in here. And it's at this moment that it begins to dawn on me for the very first time that this was a very bad idea. I'll tell you how that ends in just a little bit. But first, I want to jump into some of our stuff here. As Alex said tonight, we're going to be walking this year through the book of Exodus, step by step, kind of working through this chapter by chapter, mostly chapter by chapter throughout the whole year. And what we normally do here at the table, uh, if this is your first time, this night operates in kind of two sections usually. We will spend 20 minutes at the beginning of the night walking through a chapter or walking through a portion of scripture verse by verse and really trying to dig down deep 
and making sure that we understand what that verse, what that uh, section of scripture meant in its original context, what it meant to people around it. And then after we really dug down and tried to make sure we understand it, we take like a five minute break and everybody can get up and walk around or go to the bathroom or those things. Uh, and then we will, uh, after that, come back together and we'll, we'll ask this question. Now that we know what this says, now that we know what this means, how do we respond to this? How do we live this out? Okay, that's normally what we're going to do. Tonight, we're still going to do two parts, but we're not going to walk through a text because I, I just want to introduce the book of Exodus to you tonight. Exodus is an incredibly famous passage of Scripture. It's the second book in the Bible, and it is one of the more famous books, or at least has many of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even if you've never really spent much time in church, even if you've not spent a whole lot of time reading the Bible, you probably know uh, some of the stuff, at least in Exodus. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses and the burning bush. All of these are things that take place in the book of Exodus. And so a lot of people know these things, but most of what they know about Exodus all comes from the first 15 chapters. There's a lot more, though. There's 40 chapters in the book. Now, it makes sense why most of what people know come from the first 15 chapters, because the book itself is actually named after the first 15 chapters. It's named after the events that take place in there. That word Exodus, it's a Greek word, which is kind of weird because Exodus was written in Hebrew, but it's a Greek word, and the word means the road out. So you got the prefix ex means out, and then adas means the road. And so this is what Exodus means, and it's referring to the first 15 chapters where God comes to his people who are enslaved in Egypt, and he leads them out, takes them on the road out of Egypt. That's where that name comes from, and, and that's what most people know about Exodus. But as I said, there's, there's many more chapters in that book. Here's just a, a really kind of loose or, or maybe just kind of a real kind of bird's eye view of the book of Exodus. If you want to be very simple, you can break it up into three major parts, and I think we've got them up there for you. Uh, the first part is chapters 1 through 15, in which God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's the portion with the burning bush and the ten plagues and the Red Sea. After that, you have Exodus 16, 24. And this is where God will bring the people of Israel to Sinai and he'll make this covenant with them and enter into a new kind of relationship with them. It's almost, almost kind of a marriage ceremony where they agree to be his people and he will be their God and he will care for them and they agree to follow him and all of those things. And then the last section, verses 25 or chapters 25 through 40, talk about God's plan to dwell amongst his people through this building that they call the tabernacle, this tent that will be kind of the meeting place for God and man. God doesn't just want to leave them out and leave them. He wants to be close. He wants to live uh, within their midst. And so the last section covers this idea of the tabernacle. We're, we're going to talk about all of this over the next uh, several nine months or whatever and, and some parts we're gonna go pretty fast there's some parts we're gonna skim and we're gonna summarize and that stuff and then there's some parts where we're gonna slow down and we're gonna spend a lot of time walking through some very key and specific verses but tonight I just want to look at two verses at least for our first half just two verses and those verses take place at the beginning of chapter 5 Exodus 5 verses 1 through 2 let me catch you up real quick before we get to it the book of Exodus opens with the Israelite people, God's people, thriving and growing and, and multiplying, but they're not in a land of their own. They live in Egypt. They live there as free people, but the Egyptians begin to fear them because they're getting too big. 
and they wonder, what, what happens if these Israelites turn on us? What happens if uh, uh, an enemy comes and they begin to join forces with them? We're, we're doomed. They'll, they'll, they'll take us out from the inside. And so they, they go through a couple different campaigns to try and shut this down. And, and the main one that they uh, enact is a, is a policy of labor and slavery, where they basically make every Israelite in the land a slave that works for the purposes of Egypt. God sees this and God knows this, we're told. And so God raises up a man named Moses to go into Egypt and to lead these people out. But you don't just walk into uh, the Egyptian empire and then grab all their free labor and walk out. It's not going to work that easy. And so first Moses has to go and talk to Pharaoh. He has to go and confront the king of Egypt. And this is where we read these verses in Exodus 5, verses 1 through 2 says this, Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Now, pause for just a second. Uh, some of you may have noticed, you may have been reading along or even read on the screen ago, uh, he just said a word that's not up there. Uh, that's, not, that's not in my translation. And so something you need to know that's important for the Old Testament, it's very important for the book of Exodus. Every time you see that word, Lord, whoops, go back. There you go. We'll go to it in just a second. Thanks. You're, you're, you're ahead of the game. You're good. Okay. That word, Lord, in all caps, that word, Lord, is actually not the word that's written there in Hebrew. That word in Hebrew is actually a name, and it is the name of God. It is the name he gives to himself. Uh, the letters are YH. Uh, if you were to transliterate them into English like that. And, and we believe, actually, scholars aren't 100% sure, but, but we're pretty sure that the way you pronounce that is Yahweh. And this name is uh, huge. And, and we could spend like a week probably just trying to break down uh, the, the fullness, the theological fullness of that name. When we get to chapter 3, we'll talk a little bit about it. But for now, you need to know that it was important in a world where people believed in many gods, it was important that God uses his name. He wants people to know, I'm not just one of many gods. I am the God. I am this specific God. I am Yahweh. And so when Moses shows up to Pharaoh, he says, uh, not just any God, the God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is calling you to let his people go. And here's how Pharaoh responds. Verse 2. But Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey him by letting Israel go. I don't know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh's response is essentially, uh, sorry, never heard of him. I don't know who this Yahweh is that you're talking about, but I've never heard that name. And that might be true. He might literally have never heard of the name Yahweh before. He is Egyptian, and, and Yahweh may not be known to them at this point. But, but Pharaoh is doing more than just asking a question there. He's proposing a challenge. He's throwing down the gauntlet when he says, who is this Yahweh? You see, in the Egyptian worldview, there were many gods, and one of those gods was Pharaoh himself. He was viewed as divine. He was the final say. He was the go-between between God and man at that point. And so when Moses shows up and says, Israel's God, Yahweh, says you should let them go, Pharaoh says, I don't know if you know this, uh, but in Egypt, I am God. And so Israel's God is me. I tell Israel when they can go. I tell Israel if they're supposed to stay. So who is this Yahweh you're speaking of? 
And that question and that challenge, that's a very bad idea. Because over the next several weeks, Yahweh is going to make it clear who he is. Going to make it clear through many great and powerful acts so that no one will have any room for any doubt or wondering who is Yahweh. He will make sure that the people of Israel know, he will make sure that the people of Egypt knows, and he will make sure that Pharaoh himself knows. This is an important thing that is about to happen. And as a matter of fact, this is not just an important thing that is about to happen. Biblical scholars will tell you that that is the point of Exodus. That the point of Exodus is not the Exodus. The point of Exodus is not the Ten Plagues. It's not the parting of the Red Sea. It's not God giving the Ten Commandments. That's not the point. Those are all really great things. No, the primary purpose of the book of Exodus is for God to make himself known. This is what the book is all about. And everything he does in this book, everything God says and everything God does is to make himself known to the people of Israel and then to make himself known through the people of Israel to the nations around them so that all will know who Yahweh is. This is the key theme for this entire book. And here's what I want you to see tonight as we wrap up our first half. That I believe that God is still in the business of making himself known. I believe that that is what God wants to do. He wants to be known. And not just that, I believe and I know this, that he wants you to know him. As much as anything else during your college years, what God wants is that you would know him. And this is really, really good news. Because there are a lot of questions that we ask when we come to college. A lot of questions that we have to wrestle with. Questions like, what will I do with my life? What major or what career path am I going to try to take? Or here's one that a lot of you freshmen are asking right now. Who will be my people? Like who... What kind of group am I going to get involved with? Where am I going to find my friends? Where am I going to hang out with people? Um, or there's this one. Will I find the one? Huh? It's, a big, it's a big college question that a lot of people ask and, and wonder about. But underneath all the questions that get asked, here is the main question that people are asking when they come to college. Who am I? Or who will I be? This issue of identity, it runs underneath all of them. And every one of those questions that you may ask over the next four, five, six years are important. But can I tell you that you will never be able to answer that big one, who am I? You will never be able to fully answer that question until you answer this one, who is God? Until you answer the question that Pharaoh asked of Moses, who is this Yahweh? Because your answer to the identity question flows out of your answer to that question about God and about Yahweh. And I want you to know this, that he wants you to know him. And if you already know him, he wants you to know him more. And he wants you to be radically changed, to have a life that is transformed by this knowing, by knowing him, the one that you were made for. So next question. What does God want you to know about him? Well, to answer that question fully, you're just going to have to come and hang out with us all year as we walk through the book of Exodus. But I don't mind actually giving you a preview of what Exodus wants you to know about him. And we're going to do that in just a few minutes. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. And so you can stretch your legs. You can use the restroom in the house. I think we have I want to make sure that I make this, okay, I didn't want to make this promise without it. We've got popsicles, so we're going to start passing those out. You don't have to go run to them. We'll bring them to you. And so take a few minutes, and then we'll jump back in. Okay. 
So back to the garage. I'm sitting in the middle of this garage, stuck between a door I cannot open and a German Shepherd I cannot face. And I realize in this moment that everything that I wanted has gone wrong, that this was a terrible idea, and I am yelling at my friend Eric through the garage door. Actually, there's this little part in one of the windows, I still remember, uh, one of the windows had this little corner broken out, and so we're kind of on our tippy toes talking through each other, to each other through the little hole there. And I'm yelling at him about how could you talk me into this, and this was your idea, and what a stupid idea, and I can't believe I'm stuck in here forever. And he's trying to go, dude, chill, calm down a little bit. And as I'm yelling at him, all of a sudden he goes, shh. And I go, shh, what, what, shh, what? And then he just says, they're coming. And, and I look, I can kind of peek through the window and I see the farmer's van driving down the roads towards the thing. And I'm like, what are we gonna do? But when I look over asking that question, I see uh, that my best friend in all the world is bailing on me. <laughs> and is just taking off running, right? Um, and just leaving me in this garage. Now, I later find what, what Eric was actually doing is he was running into like the bushes. I could kind of see. He goes and runs and hides in bushes. I don't know if he's hiding there for, forever and he's going to take off or if he's just hoping that I'm going to like stay quiet until the farmers go in and then eventually we can work this out. But I've got a decision to make because they're coming and they're making their way up uh, towards the driveway and then as they pull in, I've got to decide like, am I going to play it cool? Am I going to try to hide in here and just wait until they go in and then me and my friend will figure this out? Or do I just cry out for help and get in whatever trouble I'm supposed to be getting in at this point? And truthfully, I did not think very long about this. As soon as they pulled up, I just screamed through the garage door, help, help, I'm stuck in your garage, which had to be, as I think about it, one of the weirdest things to pull up to your house and discover. Uh, to see like little hands coming out of a window crack in your garage and just hearing help and all of those things had to be like just a weird experience for them. Shannon Farmer was the dad and he was a big guy and he gets out and I don't know, literally, I don't know if he's going to uh, rip into me for doing this. I don't know if I'm going to get some huge lecture. I don't know if he's going to make me just stay in there forever and eat dog food. I don't know any of these things at this point. But I know that I cannot get myself out of this garage and I don't want to be stuck in here forever. My only chance is him. And so I'm calling out and I'm like, please get me out, get me out. And after, you know, the couple seconds of kind of stunned silence, looking at the, the hands coming out the windows there, Shannon just walks up, grabs the garage door and like no problem at all, no sweat. This door that I had no ability to open up, he just throws it up with one hand. And like that, like I'm free. And I get to walk out and I still don't know how much trouble I'm about to be in. I don't know how much lecturing, how much he's going to call me. I don't know what's about to happen, but he didn't do anything. He just opened the door and smiled at me and let me go. And I'm telling you, I don't know what I expected in that moment, but I do know this, stuck inside that garage thinking I may be there forever. The last person I expected to come and rescue me out of that place was the one that I was stealing from. The last person that I was hoping would come to get me out of this jam was the very person that I was wronging, but that's the one who came and saved me. Hold on to that thought for a second. Stick it in your back pocket. So we asked this question, or we said this, that, that Exodus is all about God making himself known. And the question is, what is known about God through reading Exodus? What is it that the writer of Exodus, what is it that God, Yahweh himself, wants us to learn about himself through this book. There's a lot of things, actually. 
tons and, and we won't get into all of them here, but let me just share with you a few of the things that we're going to be learning and hearing about throughout this year as we read through Exodus. We learn as we read Exodus that Yahweh is a God who is faithful to his promise, that he's a God who sees and hears us. He's a God who invites people into his plan and purposes. Yahweh is a God who is with us. He's not a God who stands at a distance, hoping for us to figure it out, waiting to see what we'll do. He's a God who wants to come and dwell with us and live among his people. We see that Yahweh is a God of power and might. He is a God who provides. He is a God who rightly punishes sin because he's a God who is holy and because he's a God who brings judgment and justice. We also see, and this is one of the biggest ones in the book of Exodus and one that the writers will come back to over and over again because it blew people's minds that Yahweh is a God who is gracious and compassionate and he is slow to anger unlike all the other gods that are ready to fly off the handle at any moment he is slow to anger and overwhelming in love we also read that Yahweh is a God above all gods and all of those are amazing things and all of those are really rich truths that are worth exploring but there is one aspect of God that rises to the top when you read the book of Exodus there's one characteristic of him that gets highlighted more than any other and one that he wants to be known as much as anything else when you read through this book it is spoken of a lot but it is probably epitomized in chapter 6 in these words that God speaks to Moses. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there or it will be on the screen. Romans 6, or sorry, Exodus 6, verses 5 through 8. Here's what I want you to notice. He's going to say these, these words three times. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. He's going to say that three times. And in between that, he's going to fill in the details of what it means to be Yahweh. So, Pay attention and see what does it mean for him to be Yahweh, starting in verse 5. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God and you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Over and over again, he says this, I am Yahweh, and then he fills in the details with this main characteristic. The thing that is highlighted about Yahweh more than anything else in the book of Exodus is this, Yahweh is a God who rescues. He's a God who redeems. He is a God who gives freedom to those who are enslaved, who are held captive, who are imprisoned. And this theme, theme will ring out, not just in Exodus, but will begin to ring out, uh, ring out through all the rest of Scripture. Uh, one of the biblical uh, scholars that I was listening to on this topic, he says that the book of Exodus is kind of like the dictionary entry for the name Yahweh. Right, so a dictionary, you want to know what something is, you want to know what a table is, you go look that up in the dictionary and you can read the definition there. He says that if you want to know who Yahweh is in the Bible, the dictionary entry, you go to Exodus. And Exodus will display this. And it will display that he is this, a God who rescues. He is a God who saves. And the biblical writers will keep pointing back to this event 
over and over again how God is a God who saves. That is who he is. You can trust him to be that. Remember what he did for us in the Exodus. Remember how he saved us out of, out of our slavery. And this is a really good thing because it turns out that the people of Israel are going to need a lot of rescuing. Here's the sad truth that we're going to discover as we read through this. Almost from the very moment God rescues them and pulls them out of slavery, almost from the very moment they begin to turn on him. They begin to grumble that he's not enough, that he's not done enough for them, that they had it better back in slavery, that they had it better back in Egypt. And in the middle of being at Mount Sinai, where they are receiving and entering the covenant with this God as he is giving them the law, they already start breaking it as they start worshiping false gods. And this will be a theme that happens for Israel over and over again when they get to the land that God has given them, that they consistently turn away from God and turn to idols. They consistently turn to other gods. They consistently turn to other ways of living and these things that they think will make them happy and these things that they think will provide for them and satisfy their longings, but it never works. Time and time again as they turn to those things, all it ever does is lead them to ruin and to destruction and God will come in and he will rescue them again and then they'll turn from him again and this cycle will play out over and over and it soon becomes evident that the thing that the Israelites need saving from the most is not foreign armies and it is not oppressive kings the thing that they need rescued from the most is themselves is their own sinful idolatrous rebellious hearts that keeps constantly trying to replace God, the God who made them and the God who loves them with other things, with other gods. And those things keep enslaving them time and time again. And what I want to propose to you tonight is that that's not just talking about Israel. And Israel is not the only group who needs to be rescued, that this problem is actually universal. It is a universal problem that Every person who has ever lived is in need of rescue. Because every person has in some way turned from the God who made them and the God who loves them and has tried to replace him with other things. They look to other things to give them what only God is able to truly give them. People will look to money to give them security when God is the one who gives security. People will look to relationships, a significant other, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse in order to give them significance when that can never give them significance. People will look to success and they will build their life around trying to be the best or the smartest or the highest climber in their business, whatever it is, because they think that that will be able to give them identity. And people will do whatever it is to make them happy because they think that will satisfy the longings in their heart, but it never works. All of those things are a slap in the face to the God who made you, the slap in the face to the God who made me, and the God who loves us, and all of them ultimately lead to ruin. They enslave us. And they fill us with anxiety and depression and exhaustion. And for some of you, I say those words and that truth seems so obvious to you. Like as I say those words, you know it, you recognize it because you've lived it. You know what it is to chase down things thinking that they're going to make you happy thinking that they're going to fix things, thinking that they will give you whatever you've been longing for this whole time, only to find that it led you to ruin that it made you, led you to making decisions that you never thought you would make, that you regret to this day, that led you to some of the darkest moments in your life as you thought these things were going to satisfy you or that person was going to satisfy you. And you know what it's like 
to be to be 10 year old drew trapped in your own mess trapped in something that you did to yourself there are others of you though tonight i know that that doesn't quite ring true for you there are a number of you here tonight who have spent your life chasing down things to try and make you happy, whether that's money or sex or relationships or whatever those things are. And, and the truth is, it kind of feels like it's working out for you. It kind of feels like life is working the way you want it to go, like it's giving you what you want in your life. But here's what I want you to know. Just because something is giving you what you want doesn't mean it's not enslaving you at the same time doesn't mean that it's not still getting its claws in you and many of the things that you are chasing down to satisfy you what you need to know is that they will constantly demand more and more of you if you want what they're supposed to be giving you you want success you want an identity that comes with being successful you can never rest because if you stop to take a breath someone else is going to pass you up and success might slip through your fingers you want money, you, you, you want to get more and more of it so you can feel secure. You will never quite feel secure or satisfied and you will have to sacrifice things like relationships or friendship depth with other people in order to be able to have what you want most in life in money. You need to have that other person who loves you to make you feel special. You need to have that significant other guaranteed at some point you will be forced to compromise on the convictions that you have in order to make sure that that person does not walk away from you and they might do it anyway. And you will find yourself at some point broken down by the very thing that you were trying to chase, enslaved by the very thing that you tried to chase because it will demand more and more of you until finally it owns you. The things that we want most always do that. And all of us end up in the same place, needing to be rescued from ourselves, needing to be rescued from our sin. Here's the really good news. Just as God is still in the business of making himself known today, he is still in the business of rescuing today. It is still, maybe what he does best is to rescue and redeem those who are enslaved. And the good news is that Moses was not the last rescuer that God ever sent to save people and make things right. 1400 years after Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, 1400 years later, after many, many cycles of rebellion and slavery and rebellion and oppression and all the things that they've gone through, God sends another rescuer. And this other rescuer will become the new dictionary definition of what Yahweh is like. Like you can look to Exodus and get a really good idea of what Yahweh is like. But the fullest, truest definition will come through this rescuer and his name is Jesus Christ. Because he is not just a rescuer, he is not just a person, but he is God himself. Here's how the writer of Hebrews describes it. In Hebrews chapter 1 says this, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets. That would be like Moses. God spoke to us through Moses and other prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Listen to this. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word and making after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what the writer is saying is that the fullest, clearest, truest expression of what God is like is found 
only in Jesus Christ, who came to set us free from our sins and our failures by dying to pay for all of those sins and failures so that we could be brought back to the God who made us, brought back to the God who loves us. And all year long, we're going to be exploring through the book of Exodus these beautiful themes and these beautiful truths about who God is, but we don't want to leave them in Exodus. We're going to walk through them in Exodus, and then we're going to spend some time tracing those truths about God all the way through Scripture to see how they were true of Him from front to back, but how they are most true of Him, how they are ultimately true of Him, how they are seen most fully in the person and work of Jesus. So here's the deal. I believe this to be true. For every person sitting in this backyard tonight, I believe that God wants to make himself known to you this year. You don't have to wonder what he's like. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He's not playing hard to get. He wants to reveal himself to you this year more and more. Not only that, he wants to reveal himself through you to others. As you come to know him, as you are transformed by who he is, he wants others to see him in you. But before you do any of that, the one thing he wants you to truly know is this, that no matter who you are and no matter where you've been and no matter what kind of mess you've put yourself in, he is a God who has come to rescue you. He is a God who has come to make you whole. He is a God who has come to save you from yourself and from addictions and from failures and from shameful things you've done that you wish nobody would ever know about. He has come to do that. And just like me with Shannon Farmer sitting in that garage, the very person who has come to save you is the person that you've sinned against. And the only person who can come to save you is the person that you've sinned against. But he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And he waits to leap at the chance to love you, to leap at the chance to save you, to leap at the chance to make you his and to make himself known to you. If you want to know more about that, if this, what you're hearing tonight is kind of like all new and you don't even know, you, you haven't heard exactly what this is. You want to know what it is to be rescued by God and what it is to, to, be, to have him make himself known to you and, and to be made into kind of a, a new kind of person who experienced freedom. You want to know about that. We would love to talk to you tonight. We would love to get to know you over a cup of coffee and, and share a little bit about that. Please come ask us. But for all of you, we want you to come and join us all year long. We want you to come join us as we walk through this book and explore who the one true God, Yahweh, is and what he wants you to know about him this year. Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, Yahweh God, I thank you that you are a God who makes yourself known. You are not a God who hides from us. And I thank you that you made yourself known through your son Jesus and that you made a path back to you through him. And I pray for my friends in this backyard tonight. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would stir in them with the truth of your word, that your Holy Spirit would begin to, to put a hunger inside of them to know more of you, to know who you truly are. And I pray that you would do the life-changing work of introducing them to you this year, that you would change them and, and open up their eyes to see uh, who Jesus is clearly, and then who they are in light of that. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.